Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. It's so good to be here with you guys tonight and excited uh, for what God has in store for us in his word. You know, I was very thankful being able to study today and yesterday uh, that I didn't have to come up with tonight's message. I didn't have to make something up. I just was able to plagiarize from the Bible. And so uh, you're going to need those tonight. Uh, we're looking at a message entitled, No Time to Waste. No Time to Waste. In 1904, William Borden graduated high school at the age of 16 in Chicago. He was an heir to the Borden family fortune. Before Borden moved on to an Ivy League education at Yale University, his parents set up for him an around-the-world trip as a graduation present. Earlier in his life, William Borden came to Christ through D.L. Moody's ministry. And as he traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe as a 16-year-old, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. While abroad, Borden wrote a letter to his parents informing them that he wanted to be a missionary for the remainder of his life. It was at this time that in the back of his Bible, he wrote, no reserves. One of his friends heard and said he would be throwing his life away as a missionary. Borden returned home and graduated from Yale University and then graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary as well. He went on to turn down very high-paying job offers, and his father told him he would never let him work in the company again. Borden wrote two other words in the back of his Bible, no retreat. After his education, at 25 years old, he boarded a ship to serve as a missionary in China. On the way, he stopped in Egypt to work with Muslims, and while there, he contracted cerebral meningitis, and within a month... Borden was dead. After his death, his parents received his Bible and they discovered two more words that were written shortly before his death in Egypt, no regrets. William Borden, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. When the story broke home, uh, back home in the States, God used this tragedy for his glory. Borden's story would go on to inspire thousands of young people to give their lives to reach the nations of the world. You see, you and I have no time to waste. We have no time to lose. We are to redeem the time that God has given to each of us. And whatever time we have, we are to live it without reserves, without retreat, and without regrets. Now, the portion of scripture that we come to today is found in the middle of Ephesians chapter 5. The chapter opens up with Paul exhorting his readers to be imitators of God by walking in love and by walking in light. He goes on to talk about how we as believers are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Directly following our passage, Paul gets into his famous portion on the distinct roles within marriage and how marriage is ultimately a picture of Christ and the church. But sandwiched in between is a rich passage full of deep and practical truth 
for us to live by. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. I'll just go ahead and read our whole portion today, verses 15 through 21. Uh, I'd encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles, uh, or you can always look to the screen. Here's the word of God. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we're so grateful that uh, you're going to be our instructor tonight, that you're going to, Lord, by the word of God, exhort us, encourage us, convict us. We need it tonight. We want it. Lord, would you give us ears to hear? Lord, would you make us to know the measure of our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We look to you for all of this tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now tonight, as we begin our time, we're going to start with our objective. We find this in verse 16. We find our goal or our objective, uh, which is to redeem the time. Everything else tonight will come out of a focus on what it means to redeem the time. Uh, In verse 16, it says, redeeming the time. Now, this word redeeming, it means to utilize or efficiently use something. It's to make good use of something. There's an implication with this word, redeeming, that there is to be an intensity and urgency behind it. Now, the word that Paul uses here for time is the word kairos. It's a fixed and definite period of time, a season. It's sometimes even translated as opportunity. Now, there are a handful of words in the Greek New Testament uh, that we, we find an English word time, but in Greek, there are a variety of words. I believe that Paul intentionally does not use the typical word chronos, which has to do with the flow of time, the following of one event upon another. This is where, of course, we get our word chronology. He doesn't use the word chronos, but uses the word uh, keros. And we know that time, the time that we have here on earth is a fixed time. It is only for a season, and there is a definite end to it. Our window of opportunity is not forever which is why you and I must redeem it, why we must utilize every moment that we have. Uh, In the NASB, the Bible, uh, that translation says, making the most of your time. The NLT says, making the most of every opportunity, and both are correct. It's almost like Paul is referring to time as a purchasing power or as a currency, In other contexts, the same word to redeem is used twice in the book of Galatians, referring to Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. In that context, redeeming means to buy back. Christ bought us back. 
And another way to say it here is that you and I are to buy up every opportunity. Many of us are very good at making sure we don't let a good deal pass. On days like Black Friday or Cyber Monday, we see those lightning deals and we are on them like lightning because the sale is so good we can't afford not to buy it. And this is the idea of the phrase that with such an intensity and urgency that we are to buy up every moment that we have been given. I love the question and response of someone who once asked their friend who was a lifelong reader. They asked him, how do you get time for reading? He replied, I don't get time for it. I take time. See, you won't get time. You must take it. Now, this phrase could be stolen and used in some 10 steps for living your best life blog. But within the context of scripture, we know that the best use of the time is not to live for ourselves, but to live every moment for the glory of Jesus Christ. And there's almost nothing more valuable than time. All the money in the world is not enough to buy more of it. It's something that we all have, but we aren't guaranteed how much we have of it. It is something that can be easily wasted and easily taken for granted. David speaks of the time that man has here on this earth in this way. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6, the Bible says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor, Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. According to the Bible, there's a certain measure or number of the days that we have in this life known only to God himself till the day that we die. Though David knows the Lord won't reveal to him that exact day, he pleads with him here in Psalm 39, and he pleads with him to show him the shortness of his time compared to the span of eternity. David knows that even a long life is but a vapor, which is here and then gone in a moment. And yet many people live as if they have an unlimited number of days. And he says that they busy themselves in vain, heaping up for themselves what others will gather. Moses spoke something similar in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. According to Moses, a heart of wisdom comes from recognizing that you are not promised tomorrow. In fact, you are not even guaranteed the rest of today. You know, there's something in us that can kick it into another gear when we know that the time is running out. Like in a race, you could be absolutely exhausted thinking that you have given all that you have to give. And then 
You get your eyes on the finish line. You feel the pressure of others surrounding, getting closer to the end. And in that moment, your body is able to give you one last push that you did not think that you had it in you. And you and I must live every day with our eyes on the finish line, with our eyes inside of the end, because today might just be the day that we cross it. One of my favorite books, Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders, uh, an incredible book on what it is to lead. And uh, if you want to get punched in the face, you should go read chapter 12. Uh, it's The Leader and His Time. Uh, I, I know it like offhand the chap- that it's chapter 12 because it uh, has hurt me in such a good way so many times. Chapter 12, there's a section there where Oswald Sanders says this, Each moment of the day is a gift from God that deserves care. For by any measure, our time is short and the work is great. Jesus serves as the greatest example of what it looks like to redeem the time during his earthly life. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he was always concerned with the divine timing. There were times where Jesus had to tell people and over and over again, my hour has not yet come. He was always aware, always conscious of the time he had. In John 11, where Lazarus becomes sick and dies, we find the disciples questioning his timing. And Jesus responds with a certain rhetorical question that is worth our consideration. John 11, verses 9 and 10, says Jesus answered, it was his disciples that he's talking to. He said, are there not 12 hours in the day? You might want to note that down. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This rhetorical question that Jesus asks shows us two things. It shows us the shortness of time, only 12 hours in a day. But it also shows us the sufficiency of the time that God's given us. It is enough for us to accomplish what he has planned. You see, it was daytime, but night was coming, and so they, they, being the disciples, better get going and redeem the time they have. So our objective is clear. We are to make the most of every moment for Jesus. Secondly, let's look at our motivator. We find this in the second half of verse 16. We looked at our objective, but let's look at our motivator. The Bible here says, because... The days are evil. When it says that the days are evil, it's talking about the current period of time that we are living in, that they are wicked and morally corrupt. Another way to put it is that the current time when we live is filled with evil. And the clear teaching from Scripture is that before things are going to get better, they are going to get worse. Before God is going to make all things right, which he will, things are going to get much, much worse and, and way more wrong. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us, notice, from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father. 
Our current evil, uh, our current age is classified as evil. And you don't have to look very far to confirm this. And like in the days of Noah, this will not last forever. Judgment is coming, and so time is of the essence. We must make the most of our time because there isn't much time left. And if this was true when Paul originally wrote this, then it is even that much more true to this day. You see, the writing is on the wall of the prophetic timeline that the Bible lays out for us. Unfortunately, you and I can have a tendency to see the evil of our world and the debauchery, the wickedness, the corruptness, and we can become discouraged by it. But it should be the opposite. We should see the evil and not bow out of the race, but seek to then overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21 says, and do not be overcome by evil. Don't let it overcome you, but rather overcome evil with good. You see, the evilness of our time and age should not discourage us to, to recede, but to move forward. And so rather than being in despair, and at times, listen, I get it, it feels very discouraging. But it should, that, that very, the more evil that we see should be then the greater motivator for us to make every moment count for the sake of Jesus Christ. John 9, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day or day. The night is coming when no one can work. That is coming. As long as I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. I love that, that desire of Jesus. He says, it's not optional. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. And listen, as dark as it might seem, it is not yet night. The day is at hand, and you and I are to work the works of him who sent us out and said, now you are the light of the world, and don't hide it. You see, the darkness of the world should only cause us to seek to shine brighter for Jesus. Paul used similar language when talking about time in Romans 13. Uh, Pastor Shadrach shared on the first part of Romans 13 on Sunday. I'd like to share with you the end of it. Romans 13 verses 11 through 14. Notice all the relationship or the, the, uh, the mention here of time. He says, and do this knowing the time. That now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, on in strife and envy. We don't have time for that anymore. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I love that. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. And so, church family, our objective is clear. And our motivator is compelling that we are to redeem the time because we live in evil days. 
Now we could at this moment close our Bibles and head home. However, there's much scripture surrounding this objective and motivator. And I believe that the surrounding verses supply to you and I the how-to. And so I want to share with you six practices to accomplish this objective. And uh, we're going to pull all of those from the surrounding verses uh, there in chapter 5. And so the question is, how do we actually accomplish this? You might say, Joel, I get it. I got to make the most of every moment. The times we live in is wild. The night is coming. I'm ready. What, what, where do we start? What are the practical steps that we can take to ensure that we're fulfilling the command of Scripture to make the best use of our time? Because people could have different opinions on that. Some people think that doing certain things is the best use of their time. Others think other things. We're going to look to what Scripture has to say. And so don't think that I pulled these six things out of, you know, some, again, like I mentioned earlier, some 10, 10 steps to the best, the best life you could live. Uh, no, this is all from Scripture. And so notice with me, number one, you and I are to live with intentionality. We find this in verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This word circumspectly is not typically an English word that you and I use these days, but it means carefully, mindfully. It's to, it's to do something with intentionality, uh, deliberately, uh, with exactness and accuracy. The Greek word carries it with the idea of precision, of doing something with, with complete deliberateness. This would be how one would walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls very carefully. This is how someone would perform an open heart or brain surgery, or at least you would hope so. This is how a Formula One driver would race in a, in, a, in a race. And this is how the Christian is to live every day. We are to live intentionally. We find this same Greek word used in Acts 18 when we are introduced to a guy named Apollos. You remember him from the Bible? Apollos. Acts 18 talks about Aquila and Priscilla finding this guy who was teaching, uh, but he didn't have an accurate understanding of the gospel. And so we're told this, and our word, and maybe you can find, uh, see where it's at, is mentioned two times in these couple verses. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately, circumspectly, you could, it's the same word, the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God even more accurately. You see, to live circumspectly is to not live obliviously or carelessly. If you ever want to experience the opposite of circumspectly, go to Costco on a Saturday. You won't have to get very far to experience the lack of circumspect either in the parking lot or as people attempt to push their carts around you. You will run into many people who live obliviously, uh, with, not with precision, not with exactness. 
And Christians are not to be careless, but we are to be careful, not just when we shop at Costco, but with how we live our life. Our days and weeks should be calculated and well thought out. Our lives should not be go with the flow or go wherever the wind takes us. Now listen, spontaneity has its place, but we must not be, but you and I must be the few who pursue what Jesus described as the narrow way. Remember in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus talks about the narrow way, which is difficult and leads to life. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is a way that leads to destruction. That's easy. If you just go with the flow, you'll end up there. And there are many who go in by it. Notice what he says, because narrow is the gate, okay, that's the entrance, and difficult is the way, that's the journey, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, sometimes we only think about this verse in regards to salvation. We think of John 14, 6, it says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And while I absolutely believe this verse is talking about salvation, it also doesn't just talk about the gate, but the way. And the way is difficult. The way is narrow and it's compressed and we must watch where we go. We've been given very specific instructions in the word of God and we must do all we can to follow them. This will not happen automatically. No one wanders onto the narrow road. It takes intentionality to not turn to the right or to the left. Remember when you were a kid during the summers and the days just melted together? Wake up whenever, do whatever, go wherever, and you were just along for the ride? See, unfortunately, some people never grow up and their days still melt together. Or sometimes we're so busy that we're not even thinking about what we are doing. But this is not how Jesus lived. Jesus walked circumspectly. He lived with intentionality in regards to where he went, when he went, and what he did. He knew he had a purpose and nothing would stand in the way of fulfilling his purpose. Mark 138 is just one example of many where Jesus said, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. See, Jesus lived that way, that even, even good things of staying in a town and healing people, he said, no, I've come not just to heal, I've come to preach. And he had purpose, and he did not let things deter him from that purpose. Now notice in your Bibles, if you're still in Ephesians 5, which I hope you are, look at the second part of verse 15. He says, not as fools, but as wise. Meaning to live your life on a whim, winging it, To live without intentionality is a foolish thing to do. And if tonight you might be in this room and you feel like you're just floating through life with no real purpose, no aim, then tonight is the night to come to him who is wisdom and begin living with purpose, his purpose. Or maybe tonight 
you are living with intentionality, but for the wrong purpose. You have a goal, but it has to do with you and not him. Then for you, it's time to repent and do the first works. Jesus told the parable of a certain rich man who had stored up for himself uh, for years to come. He actually tore down barns, built new ones, and put all his uh, new crops and stuff. And finally, he sits back and he says to himself, he says, soul, he says, you've worked very hard, and now it's time to sit back and enjoy. And yet it was that night, the Bible says that his soul was going to be required of him. And Jesus refers to that man as a fool. Luke 12, 20 says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? It's not just living with intentionality in a general sense, but intentionally living every moment for Jesus. Secondly, we are to seek the will of God. The way that you and I make the most of the time that God has given us is to seek the will of God. We find this in verse 17. Verse 17 says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so we have a contrast here. Uh, Both words that begin with you. Uh, He says, don't live unwise, but understand. This word unwise is actually the same word in Luke 12, 20, when Jesus said uh, that God said to that man, fool, it's the same word. Don't live like a fool, mindlessly. That word unwise, it means ignorant. The NLT version says, don't act thoughtlessly. Okay, so that's connected to what we just talked about. Well, then what do we do in the other side of it? Well, you and I are to understand what the will of God is. That is to not only know but it's to comprehend the nature of God's will. And I'm going to explain the difference. Now, first off, verse 17 tells us something. It tells us that the will of God for our lives is something that's knowable. It's something that we can know. It's something that we are to know. It's something that can be grasped. The Amplified Bible uh, puts this for verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish and thoughtless, but understand and notice this and firmly grasp what the will of the Lord is. This means it's not just in a general sense, I know what God wants, but it's very specific. Secondly, we know that understanding God's will comes from knowing God's word. That's at least the starting point. You will never know God's will outside of knowing God's word. Now, there are a handful of verses that we can come across that say it very clearly, for this is the will of God for you. I love when I come across those because it's like very clear. Uh, But it's more than that. When you start to really consume the word of God, you begin to so know him and so know the nature of God that you over time know what he wants. And if you've been walking with Jesus and pursuing him for any sort of distance, then you know what I'm talking about. You just begin to know what he wants. You are able to take the word of God and then practically apply it to the situations of your life. Now notice, it doesn't just say know God's will, but it says understand God's will. And I believe the idea is knowing 
how to apply the knowledge of his will to your personal life. You know, I've come across people at times and they have a knowledge of God's word, but it's, it's all up here, it's all educational, and there's a disconnect. And to seek the will of God is to, seek, is to, is to begin bringing the word of God to your actual life, and that happens not just by knowing it, but beginning to do God's word. Because sometimes, you know, I, I sit with people in biblical guidances, and especially many students, and they know the word. But because they're not doing the word, they don't really know God's will. And you're like, you know the answer, but why don't you understand it? Well, it's because they're not really living Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which happens by the spirit of God through the word of God. And notice what the whole goal of Romans 12.1 and 2 are that you may prove, show, reveal what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And God's will is good. It is perfect and it is acceptable. But the reason that someone knows the word without knowing God's will is because they're missing a crucial step and it's that they're not doing what they know. You see, step one, you gotta know his word. Step two, you got to do his word. And I believe the result that Romans 12, 2 says is that out of your life, it will prove itself. You will have an understanding specifically of what God wants you to do. And maybe that's connecting with someone here tonight where you're like, I know the word, I see my life, and I don't know how it connects. It's be, it might just be because you're not doing the things that you already know. You see, God has a general will. This is his word. But he also has a specific will for your life that's tailor-made. And the only way to get there to the specific day-to-day things of the will of God in your life is you got to not only know it, but you got to begin to do it. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. See, God not only knows every day of our life, but according to the scriptures, he has a specific plan for them. It starts with the word, but it does not end there. James 4, verses 13 through 15 says, gives this scenario. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. James is specifically speaking to people who are making plans without consulting the will of God. Verse 14, it says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. He says, instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. The Bible does not condemn planning. It condemns planning without consulting the will of God. Or to be so definite that you are so doing your will that you have no room for God to direct your steps. See, Proverbs 16, 9, we we know that one. A man's heart plans his way but the Lord directs his steps. Sometimes we get real good at the planning and we forget about the God directing the steps part. But we are to always have this type of verbiage in our speech. It doesn't, we, we don't have to say this whole thing, well, if the Lord wills, 
but it should be somewhere in our perspective and our mindset. You know, how exciting is it that you and I can understand, comprehend, and firmly grasp what God wants for our lives. We don't have to guess what he wants. We can not only know his will, but we can understand how it looks in our life. But listen, we must seek it out. It won't happen on its own. Thirdly, the third way that we can redeem the time because the days are evil is to be spirit-filled. To be spirit-filled. We find this in verse 18. And this has got to be the most important one. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So in this passage, we have a do not and we have a to do. We have a don't do and a do. And so the do not is don't be drunk with wine. Why? Well, number one, because God says that drunkenness is a sin and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's one thing, pretty important. But sin is not something that God arbitrarily makes up where he says, well, this is sin because I said so. Now, he does say so, but it's not random. His commandments are given for our betterment and not our detriment. Paul here gives the reason and rationale. Notice, he says, it is because of what drunkenness leads to. He says it's dissipation. And this goes right in line with the full context of the passage. Dissipation is reckless and wasteful living. Very similar to the idea of the prodigal son who was wasteful, wastefully living. It's also referred to as debauchery. And that clearly goes against redeeming the time. To get drunk is not only a sin against God, it is a waste and a reckless way to live. It leads to nothing good. Rather, though, on the contrast, we are to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to willingly come under the power and influence of the Spirit of God. It's not to be drunk in the Spirit, as some weirdos try and say. They say, well, you know, Paul's giving this contrast and, oh, the Spirit's upon me. I can't control it. No, listen, alcohol is a depressant. It disrupts the neurotransmitters in our brains affecting feelings, thoughts, and behavior and depresses them. Conversely, though, when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they are stimulated by God to the things of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit who then renews our minds, giving us clear thought, stable emotions, and control over ourselves. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing. The first occurrence of, the fill, of this type of filling is on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You remember? Things got a little wild to say the least. Um, but it was all under control. But God used it in awesome ways. And that was the first time. So it was the birth of the church. It's very special. Um, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. But then you go on to find the book of Acts. Uh, numerous occasions where those same people and others are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the grammar here tells us three things about this verb. So if you're taking notes, I want you to note down that to be filled is a, is a verb, meaning it's an action. 
But the grammar surrounding it is very important for us to take note of. So the first thing that the grammar tells us is that it's in the present perfect tense. You're like, what does that mean? It means it is something that is to be continual and not a one-time event. Because it's in this tense, we know that it's separate from salvation. When you get saved, that's a one-time deal. Holy Spirit moves in. This is the filling of the Spirit is not the Spirit moving in, it's, it's coming upon. And because of the present perfect tense, it's continual. But it's also an imperative, meaning it's not a suggestion, it's a command. And then third thing that the grammar tells us is it is a passive command. Meaning, though it is something, an action we take, it is not something we can do. Very interesting. It can't be manufactured by us. It's something that has to be received. You see, to be filled by the Spirit is to live in constant awareness of God's presence in your life. It is cho- it's to choose to be led by Him, to hand Him the reins, put Him in the driver's seat. And this is something we must consciously do every day, but realize that we can't do it. All we can do is ask. I'm very thankful that Jesus told that story of of us asking God for the Holy Spirit. And he gives the illustration of if a father can give good things to his children, then how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? You see, the picture here of being filled with his Spirit, don't think of it like volume, meaning one believer cannot be more spirit-filled than another. The Bible tells us that the spirit isn't given in measure. So when you come across a believer, it's like, wow, they are really spirit-filled. Uh, no, no, when the Bible talks about the filling, don't think about it in, return, in, in regards to volume. Rather, the word picture is actually the way a boat raises its sails so that the wind that is always blowing is able to fill the sails. And so the only reason that you are not experiencing the daily filling of the Holy Spirit is because you are not looking for it. You are not asking. You don't have your sails up. The wind is blowing and all we got to do is put the sails up, but it does not happen by default. It's not like breathing. You know, breathing is something that God has allowed our body to do without thinking about it for the most part. God is always ready to fill us with the spirit, but do we ask? Do we seek to be spirit-filled? Well, if we're going to if we're going to redeem any time, then we better be spirit-filled. Now, these next three, we're going to go through a little quicker because time is uh, shortening. These next three really come out of the one who is spirit-filled. To be honest with you, to try to redeem the time by walking circumspectly, understanding the will of God, it's not something that we're going to be able to accomplish without being spirit-filled, at least not in any substantial way. You remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. However, in this direct context, I want you to notice the use of commas and not periods. So you guys should be looking down at your Bibles. Look at verses 18 through 21. You're going to find commas and not periods. Now, it's not that that's in the original Greek language because they didn't have that kind of stuff. 
But this is done by the translators because there is a continual flow of thought. Verses 18 through 21 actually form one long sentence. And it is out of the spirit-filled believer that these last three practices uh, come. If we try to do these without being spirit-filled, we will fail uh, miserably. So number four, verse 19, out of a spirit-filled life comes a prioritization of praise. We're to prioritize, prioritize, I don't know why I can't say that word, prioritize praise. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. A supernatural result of being filled with the Spirit of God is having the desire to sing praises to the Lord. This can come through a variety of ways. And you'll notice in this verse, uh, it's not just one form that's mentioned. Uh, Whether that's singing scripture or biblically based songs that have been passed down through generations. Or it can be something that the Bible calls, say, is like a new song. Uh, It's a spiritual song. It's something that we create to worship the Lord. And this is why at this church we choose to dedicate such a sizable portion of our services to worshiping the Lord by singing. Uh, This concept is found all over the scriptures. Now notice though that Paul references outward singing but also an inward melody. Meaning praising the Lord is not about how loud someone sings or how well someone sings but the heart behind it. Now I for one am uh, very thankful for this reality. I'm thankful for verses in the Bible that say we can make a joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, Because sometimes that's all I'm doing. But Colossians 3.16 is uh, the parallel verse to this. Colossians 3.16 says something very similar. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And out of that, out of that word of Christ dwelling, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Martin Luther said, I have no pleasure in any man who despises music. It is no invention of ours. It is a gift of God. He says, I place it next to theology. Satan hates music. And no, he's not talking about like jazz music. Satan hates music. He knows how it drives the evil spirit out of us. Who has skill in the art of music is of good temperament and fitted for all things. It is good for us to gather together and sing praises to the Lord. But, and, and that is a way to redeem the time. And so the question for us today is, do we make praise a priority? Notice that it's not something that Paul references here as being done by ourselves, but he says speaking to one another. That's the idea of singing in the presence of one another. Do we think that the singing portion of our service is worth our time? Do we think of worship as something we can miss, but make sure we're here for the Bible study? That one hurt some people. Is the last song just a formality? Or do we see it as an opportunity to respond in praise? I bet no one is gonna leave after this last song tonight. (laughs) Number five, express gratitude. We find this in verse 20 giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You better believe that this is an impossible practice 
to do without being spirit-filled. Spirit I don't care how positive of a person you are. I want you to notice the two details that are given regarding thanksgiving here. Always and all things. The Bible here says we are to give thanks always and for all things. Another practical way to redeem the time is to take the time to say thank you. And to say thank you to whom the credit is due. This goes back to living intentionally and thinking about what you have and where it comes from. We know 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and this is kind of one of those verses I mentioned earlier, uh, this is the will of God. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But listen, God's commandment of us being thankful is not because God loves our thank yous. Now, do I think that blesses his heart? Absolutely. But he knows that it is good for us to be thankful to him. God knows the dangers of unthankfulness and bitterness. But listen, this doesn't mean that you have to fake it and lie to yourself. And even in the difficulties that you and I can choose to have that sacrifice of praise. And it is not a waste of time. It is a way that we can redeem the time. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Sometimes it's a sacrifice. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Meaning it's not something that always just is internally. Sometimes we don't feel like singing, thank you, God. But we do it anyway. Six and finally, we are to put we are to put ourselves under. Uh, we are to put yourself under, verse 21. This is the sixth way that we are to redeem the time. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. The word submitting here literally means to be under in rank. To be under in rank. It's actually a military word. It speaks of the way that a, a military is organized amongst levels of rank. You have generals, colonels, majors, captains, sergeants, privates, whatever it may be, and there are levels of rank, and you are obligated uh, to respect the rank that is higher than you, right? That makes sense. Yet we know how the kingdom of God works. Those who are the greatest are the servants of all. To submit yourself to someone is to humble yourself before them, treating them better than yourself. It's, it's an act of service. Jesus gave us this example when he, being the teacher and master, the highest rank, he gave an example of he submitted himself and he put himself under by washing the feet of the disciples. Now, it does not mean that Jesus was saying he's less than. No, he was leading by example. And if we kept reading tonight, starting in verse 22, you would find that he goes on to talk about the, the roles within marriage. But notice what he starts with first, that before there are different, uh, what you could call as ranks, but it's not an equality thing, it's a role thing. And either way, you and I as Christians, regardless of who we're dealing with, you and I are to give preference to one another. Submit ourselves in the fear of God. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate 
to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. That is to submit yourself to the needs of others before yourself. This is one of the greatest uses of our time that God has given to us, is to serve. A couple other verses here, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. So he says, hey, there, there is something, there's a level, uh, there's some ranks here. But then he says this, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Then it won't be an issue. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what I want you to notice in your Bibles is that this is done in the fear or the respect of God. It has nothing to do with if we respect, if we have or hold respect for another believer, then we submit ourselves. No, no, the motive is in the fear of God. It's because we so love the Lord, we so have so much respect and reverence for God himself that we are willing to put ourselves under other people. And so tonight, church, our objective is clear. Redeem the time. Our motivator is compelling because the days are evil. And our practices to accomplish that, for me, and I don't know about you, are quite convicting. To live with intentionality, to seek the will of God, to be spirit-filled, to prioritize praise, to express gratitude, and to put ourselves under one another. And what I want to tell you guys tonight is that there is no time to waste. Now tonight, if you have found yourself here in this sanctuary, and maybe even watching online, and you know that you are not forgiven of your sin, that you've yet to receive the salvation of God through the finished work of Jesus and his spilt blood upon the cross, I want to tell you that it's not too late yet. You know, life is full of too lates. We could go on and on again about how we missed out on something. We were too late for it. But what I want to encourage you tonight is don't let salvation be one of them. Don't put it off. Time is coming to a close. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Living for ourselves must be something of the past. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is no bigger waste of time than a life spent without Jesus. It will mean nothing. Without Jesus, everything you do, everything that you think you accomplish in your life will be for nothing. There's no time to waste. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Call upon the name of Jesus. Confess, turn from your sin, change your mind, come to Christ for salvation, trust him to forgive your sin, give him your life that you might not lose it. It will be the greatest decision you could ever make. And if I were you, 
I would not wait a single moment. Redeem the time and come to Christ. And so as we close today, let's think about that day that we will arrive at eternity's shore. Will you and I have made the most of the time that God gave us? May we, like William Borden, determine to live with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves before you. Lord, we confess that we have wasted so much time on things that do not profit. But we are so grateful that you are the God of redemption. And so even the past that we have wasted does not have to determine the future that you have. Lord, you told us in the book of Joel that you're able to, Lord, redeem what the locusts have eaten. The years that we may have lived without you, Lord, we no longer have to look to those to define us. But we want to agree tonight with the Apostle Paul, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward toward that upward call. We know you're calling us onward. You're calling us upward. Would you help us to answer the call? Lord, we know there's no time to waste. And uh, we also confess that we can't do it without you. But we know there's going to be that moment where we stand before you at the judgment seat. Not, nothing to do with punishment or consequence. Lord, Jesus took that for us on the cross. But we're going to stand there for the bema seat of Christ. And Lord, we want our lives to make it through that holy fire. Lord, of gold, silver, and precious stones. That we might hear that, those words, well done. Not perfect, but thy good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to be faithful to the seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years that you have for us. Lord, we know the number of our days are in your hands. But you told us to just focus on today. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all those things would be added. And so, Lord, help us to always have you in our minds. To be spirit-filled. And so, God, we give you our lives. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand uh, for this song of worship. Let's prioritize praise.